Welcome to On Mike. I'm Jordan Rich. He's a best-selling author, award-winning documentary producer, a lover and student and teacher of history. Rick Beyer is a longtime friend of mine and frequent guest on radio. He has crafted a series of very popular history books, starting with The Greatest Stories Never Told, containing tales that certainly offer us a chance to do a double or triple take on history as we know it. Among the many film projects that Rick has produced is one that's very near and dear to his heart and one that has garnered a lot of international attention, the PBS documentary, The Ghost Army, and we'll certainly talk about that. Rick speaks to groups small and large across the world, and he's about to pick up stakes and move to the Midwest, but not before I corner him to do the On Mic with Jordan podcast. What a treat to be with my friend Rick Beyer, and this is serendipitous because you're physically going to be leaving this area where we're broadcasting from very, very soon. I caught you just before you make the trip to the Midwest. Yeah, we are relocating to Chicago uh, after having moved to the Boston area from Chicago 32 years ago. I would have pegged you as Mr. Boston all the way. I mean, you're at the Lexington Green every year. You're Mr. History. But then again, Chicago's got a good history, too. Chicago has lots of history, a history with a big fire somewhere in the background, a history going back to the time of the American Revolution and a great political history. And just a, yeah. it's a tremendous city. And we loved being there. And we're happy going back. We're sad to leave all our friends in the Boston area, but we'll be returning frequently, I'm sure. Well, as a podcast, it goes everywhere. So hello, Chicago. <laughs> and uh, hello to Rick Byer, my favorite historian. We've done so many radio gigs together. And uh, it started out, before we get to your current book, it started out with the greatest stories never told. And that was sort of a theme. You had the greatest presidential stories never told, uh, war stories, music stories, science. You developed a whole theme there, didn't you? Well, those were all about uh, quirky, strange history stories that that would kind of turn your expectations upside down. And I, I, it's just what I've always been interested since I was a kid uh, with the pieces of history that are so surprising. You go like, wait a minute, I, I didn't know that. I can't, I, that's, a, that's unbelievable. And so, yeah, we built a book series out of those. But you could really say that that's my whole brand is trying to find a take on history that's going to make you – open your eyes and and look at it a little differently. Before we get to Rivals Unto Death, your latest Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, give, I know you must be asked this all the time, but can you pull out a couple of greatest stories never told, just to give an example to the audience what we're talking about? Yeah. So one of my favorites is the story of how three cigars changed the course of the Civil War. And it was in 1862. And the Confederate Army under General Robert E. Lee was uh, invading the North. And the Union Army under General McClellan is looking for for uh, Lee. And if Lee can uh, invade the North successfully, he could uh, uh, create a situation where France suddenly recognizes the Confederacy and England recognizes them and the war is won for the Confederacy. And he's facing McClellan, who's a terrible general, one of the most overcautious men ever to wear Union blue. And they're marching through Maryland. And um, uh, one of uh, the privates in the Union army at a place where they're camped out, finds three cigars sitting in the field. And he opens them up. They're wrapped in a piece of paper. He opens the piece of paper up, and it turns out it's the marching orders for Lee's army. They'd been there a few days before, and he has found their orders. They pass them all the way up to McClellan. He says, um, with this piece of paper, if I can't whip Bobby Lee, I'm willing to go home. 
and he launches his troops into action. And the result is the Battle of Antietam, which is the bloodiest single day in American history. It defeats uh, Lee's attempt to invade the North, and it never would have happened except for three cigars, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you, you, when you tell somebody a story like that, you can sometimes see it in their eyes that, wait a minute, I thought history was boring. What? Wait a minute. And oh, that's yeah. that's always what I'm after. Well, that's why we, we loved getting together with you when I did the late night show. And there were so many hours of stories. Now, you have the new book called Rivals Until Death, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And we're not giving away any free tickets to Hamilton, by the way, on this <laughs> I know, show. If you do, can I have some? Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone now is, is raving about that musical. But uh, you looked into this and there's a lot more here than simply two statesmen of their time and a duel, right? Well, it's an amazing story, and it's really relevant to us today because all of the issues that the Founding Fathers are dealing with at that time, uh, elites versus the common people, big government versus small government, uh, debt, uh, immigration, they're all still issues today. And in Burr and Hamilton, you have two men whose differences kind of capture the raging conflicts of that time. And then you have this amazing personal story. These guys knew each other for a long time. They first come into contact with each other 25 years before their duel. They, uh, as lawyers in New York, they are friends. They are uh, mm. sometimes serving as co-counsel. They are in courtrooms together. They are in drawing rooms and at dinners together. And so it's very interesting to chart, if you will, the uh, course of their relationship and how it goes bad and how it, it almost comes back. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. And, and history has sort of, well, general history has has deemed Aaron Burr the villain of the piece because he walks away from the duel alive. But we know that there's a lot more to this story. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of levels of... Yeah, of so one of the things discord. when I was writing the book, I said, um, you know, I was like a lot of other people. I had written in another book, you know, Aaron Burr uh, has a reputation as a scoundrel and he deserves it. But when I started this book, I said, well, I, I have to treat them equally. I have to not make that assumption that Burr is the villain because that then kind of changes the... makes you write the story in a certain way. And if you just look at Burr on the face of, of you know of him without looking into the future to see what he does when he shoots Hamilton and other stuff. He is a, an abolitionist. He is a feminist. He is a patron of the arts. He is a loving a husband and father. He is a war hero in the American Revolution, which kind of uh, gets lost in the musical mm -hmm. Hamilton. Uh, and he is a brilliant political innovator. So he is really an amazing character. And it is quite um, striking to think how history would be different if he and Hamilton had somehow patched up their differences or at least not gone to shoot at each other over them. Uh, one of them might have ended up becoming president. Uh, they both might be remembered very differently. And that is just a story we'll never know. But that's one of the things that makes it so interesting to trace their And, and it's all part of this theme of history's stories not told and, and facts and, and actual stories that are coming to light, thanks to you, people like you. And you mentioned something about the political tenor of the times, and everyone is going nuts about what's going on in today's political climate. And I've done enough research and reading on Lincoln and that period and prior. Pretty nasty stuff going on back then, too. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, the uh, in the presidential election of 1800, uh, 
the Hartford Current, a newspaper which still exists today, right. predicted that if Jefferson was elected, that blood would run in the streets, that our wives and daughters will be sold into prostitution. Uh, people believed that uh, Jefferson was going to uh, uh, take away their Bibles because he was an atheist. And so the the we think now that we use the phrase, it was a happier, simpler time. <laughs> Man, it wasn't. The, the, um, it's one of the things I really wanted to say in this book is we do not think of the founding fathers as being angry or jealous or ambitious or narcissistic or ego-driven. And believe me, they were all of those things. And that's something that I really wanted to portray. You know, Thomas Jefferson whining at cabinet meetings about the length of Hamilton's speeches or John Adams when he said of um, Hamilton and of Hamilton's behavior here, I think this is something I don't think I could say on WBZ radio, but he said uh, he said he blamed Hamilton's behavior on an excess of secretions which he didn't have whores enough to draw off. <laughs> oh, I mean, God. this is the this is the guys that we look up to as oh the great figures of our Rocks. country, yes. right? So it is it is when you get into the you you when you look at the history, it's actually it makes you feel optimistic. Because you say, wow, it was terrible. Then, <laughs> you know, the, their, their conflicts, the personal conflicts, the anger, the dysfunction was terrible 200 years ago. So when I look at it today, I think, okay, well, maybe it's not as terrible as I thought it was. <laughs> it, it, it puts everything into perspective in a, in a very important way because uh, history as it's unfolding often is is – molded to fit the present day political whims and well, so Well, and forth. we want to revere the figures of the past. Sure. You know, we want to revere Washington and Lincoln and and Roosevelt and all these different people. And fair enough. But, you know, the, when you actually get into the details, every one of them's got all sorts of flaws and there's all sorts of anger and stuff being bandied about in the moment that just gets lost. It's noise from the time that doesn't make it to the pages of the history book when we look at the results and we can kind of so, quantify So here's everything. a question that I, I probably have posed to you in the past, but what's different about what you're doing or any historian today? I mean, are the resources more accessible or you're still doing detective work? Are you looking in different places for parts of the story that have gone untold? How do you, how do you what's the process like, Rick? I think the process is both the same and different. You're you're doing the same thing, which is you're trying to seek out uh, you know, original sources when you can find them, sources that maybe other people haven't mined as much when you can find them. Uh, I, I do a lot less stuff through books in libraries than I used to and a lot more stuff online. But that doesn't mean I'm looking at Wikipedia and you know copying down the right. entries there. I know that. It means that, for yeah. example, in this book, there is a website called uh, a U.S. government uh, National Archives website called founder, archives.founders.gov, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And it has um, 175,000 letters written by uh, uh, the first five presidents and uh, and a few other figures from the constitutional times, from the revolutionary times. And these are all primary source documents that you can word search. So what you're seeing now is a lot more information that's available online. But what you have to be careful about is making sure that you don't restrict yourself to that, because otherwise you're only going to look at material that other people are looking at too. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the Ghost Army story, which we've talked about before, the World War II deception unit, I've done a, a lot of research where we've dug in to the personal letters of people 
that were soldiers in this unit and going to the houses of their families and looking through diaries and papers and stuff. And hopefully if you can have that element to your research also, which which is a very traditional going back in history element, you can still find the things that that you know didn't make the cut for the archives exactly. or sort of for the other history books. Talking with Rick Beyer, historian and best-selling author. His new book is Rivals Unto Death, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And you just teased it, so I'll bring it up, The Ghost Army Project, which we celebrated on radio and talked about. And when it came out as a documentary, man, it just blew me away. And for those who are unfamiliar with the basic premise, this is World War II, and it's an attempt to fool the Nazis. And tell us a bit more, encapsulate it for us. So this is the story of a U.S. Army unit called the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, and their mission was to deceive the Germans on the battlefields of Europe. And they are, in essence, impersonating other larger American units. It's 1,100 guys in this unit, and they are pretending to be the 6th Armored Division or the 75th Infantry Division and fool the Germans about where that particular unit might be. And they used... um, Inflatable tanks and trucks uh, to fool enemy reconnaissance. They used sound trucks playing uh, um, uh, records and from a wire recorder playing sounds to fool the enemy that way. They did radio deception. They did uh, literally they created phony headquarters. They had sergeants who were pretending to be generals and driving through town in uh, jeeps, you know, with the markings of a general to fool any enemy spies left behind. And this was a unit that was top secret. Uh, basically, with some exceptions to the secrecy, nobody knew very much about this till the 90s, and it's still pretty little known today. Mm. But they were involved in 21 different deceptions starting a week after D-Day. So this is not the D-Day deception, different right, story, right, right. starting a week after D-Day and going to the end of the war. And I have um, I came across this story. I'm almost at the anniversary day now. It's 14 years ago. Mm. 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, I just found it a really amazing, you know, it's one of those little known stories that changes our view of history. And uh, it's, but it's also a story about creativity and how you, how you can use out of the box thinking to try to save lives in a really challenging situation and uh, great personal stories of the soldiers. So, I have spent a lot of time working on it. We've talked about it many we times. We have. You're wearing a button on your lapel, which is important. This is the the emblem of the unit, I, I guess. Sort of. So sure. it's a little ghost with a lightning bolt, yeah. and uh, it's on the cover of their official history. But it's not their official emblem because they didn't have one. Because they're top secret. Because they're secret. Because right, right. you don't want to say, hi, we're the guys in the secret <laughs> unit. <laughs> we're the Ghostbusters unit. You know, one, of the, one of the funny stories from this unit, just completely ridiculous, is that there was a um, their commanding officer, who was in, in many ways not the perfect commanding officer for this unit, but he's, he gathers the men together in a square in Luxembourg, and he's giving them a big speech about the importance of secrecy. And people are going, we are outdoors in Luxembourg <laughs> City in this square. He's on a PA system talking about how important secrecy is. Hello. I love the the website, and we'll give it uh, its due in a second where you can actually trace with your mouse or your 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 icon, your clicker there, you can trace across the pictures of those who I, I believe are still surviving, there aren't many left, and see them in their current day and in their original, you know, army photographs. And you realize, holy smokes, this is 70 years ago. 75. Oh, so 75. are there any are there any remaining? There are just a few or what? It's about 18 that okay. I know of. And uh, I saw 
uh, one of the veterans the other day, Gil Seltzer. Gil is 104 years old. Oh, my goodness. And um, uh, he came out to a dinner that uh, I was speaking at, and he was kind of the guest of honor at this dinner. And um, unfortunately, somebody else at the dinner um, uh, had a mild stroke, and 911 was called. And the During pa- the dinner? Yeah, and the paramedics oh. had to come and take them away. You would have thought if the paramedics were coming, it would have been for the 104-year-old guy. <laughs> he was doing fine. Somebody 30 years younger was having oh, a problem, and they, and they were fine. But yeah. but uh, there are about 18 veterans left, there, out of 1,000. In, in, when watching the documentary and uh, the, the subsequent – you did a book, too. A we did, right? A, a documentary and a book, and now we have a, a nonprofit. The there, Ghost there Army are Legacy some Project. which we want to talk about. There are some well-known names that were involved, some big names, in fact. Right. Another aspect of the story is, and there's so many aspects of this story. It's one of the things that I think has given it legs. Is that um, uh, the fashion designer Bill Blass was in this unit? The great uh, minimalist painter and sculptor Ellsworth Kelly was in this unit. The wildlife um, artist, uh, Arthur Singer, Mm -hmm. uh, who did the birds and flowers of the 50 States postage stamp series. He was in this unit. Art Kane, who took the position, the, the photo of all the jazz musicians on the stoop in Harlem. Yes. He was in this unit and many, many other people who had tremendous uh, arts careers. Let's go back for a second uh, or two. You were talking about fooling the Germans with a lot of things, including sound. And here we are in a, in a pretty, up-to-date 21st century studio. You can see behind me, we, yes, have, the, a, we have a, a very, tape recorder and a record uh, and, a, and an actual turntable. But I'm thinking about how difficult it is to, to play sound in 2019 so that it's amplified and it sounds real in an outdoor setting. They pulled off an amazing bit of chicanery here with with literally really primitive technology. Well, they would have thought they were working with the state of the art oh, technology because they had wire recorders, which which is the predecessor to the tape recorder, where you record on a piece of wire that's about the thickness of fishing line. It's mm-hmm. magnetized wire, and and I own a wire recorder, and the sound quality is pretty good. It's amazing. And they they ran them through. Of course, their amplifiers would have had vacuum tubes in them. They right. probably had to have a whole supply of them for when they blew uh, when they're out in the field. And then they played these sounds over 500-pound Jensen speakers. So the speakers had to be on a crank system to crank them out of the back of the half track and get them up into playing position. And then supposedly they could play uh, – they had a range of 15 miles over water. Mm. But when I've, I've traveled to a number of the, the battlefields where they used these and we've kind of walked the battlefields – Oftentimes, they really pushed the sound trucks way up near the front. So they were sometimes 500 meters, uh, 1,000 meters from the front line. So we're really talking about the, there were times when the, there was really not a lot of American soldiers with guns between the sound truck and the enemy. And, and these men put their lives in in danger like front line troops. I mean, and they didn't have the kind of – did they have the kind of military support in – unit to to protect themselves? Well, no, they really did not. They had, you know, they were all soldiers. They'd all gone through basic training. They all had, you know, M1 rifles or carbines, and they had a few 50 cal machine guns. But if uh, two or three enemy tanks would have uh, blown through them pretty pretty easily, and they're trying to pretend that they have hundreds of tanks. So Mm -hmm. they had to be effective in projecting force to prevent the enemy from realizing that, hey, there's nobody there. What was Patton's role in this whole endeavor? 
Very interesting. You know, Patton, people remember Patton for being involved in the D-Day deception, but he's also very involved in a lot of Ghost Army deceptions. Uh, They're not all done for Patton's Third Army, but a lot of Mm. them are. And we found a quote from one of the deception planners about George Patton, and it said that um, Patton basically was the person over there who was the greatest team player that they ran into, that he would do anything in the interest of the overall picture. So we have this image of Patton as being the swaggering, you know, rough and tumble, tough guy with the ivory-handled pistols and the riding crop and all this stuff. And their image of him was of somebody who was a team player and thoughtful in his generalship. And uh, and so I think that's why he embraced the Ghost Army, and that's why so many of their deceptions ended up being for the Third Army. That's very interesting because another story not told <laughs> about a personality larger than life. We also mentioned the Legacy Foundation, and this is a very near and dear project to you and people involved. Tell us about it. Right. So we have founded a nonprofit, the Ghost Army Legacy Project, to preserve and honor the legacy of the Ghost Army. Uh, and our, we're doing a few different things. We're building a Ghost Army archive, including some of those letters we talked about earlier, with the eventual goal of donating it to a major institution. We are also, uh, we just uh, dedicated the very first historical monument to the Ghost Army in Europe, which we were involved in creating. Uh, We dedicated that in September in Luxembourg on the exact site of one of their uh, Mm. operations. And we are also advocating with uh, Congress, lobbying to get them awarded a Congressional Gold Medal. And these are our three major priorities. By the way, uh, we talked about the sound systems and so forth. Uh, How much of the original equipment, if any, still exists? Boy, I have not been able to find any. And uh, the inflatable stuff is is kind of that's all uh, that's neoprene it wouldn't have lasted decay go away i the sound um there probably are fragments of the sound system still around and maybe some of the sound effects records that they originally Mm. recorded but i haven't been able to find them yet but somewhere somehow some of this stuff might still exist somewhere although it exists on film and we can see it in the documentary and talk a little bit since this podcast is also about the people in the creative arts. Talk a little bit about the process of getting a documentary done. Was this your first major documentary, by the way? It it took eight years to get this done, so it might take eight years to talk about the process. (laughs) We may not have that much time. I'd actually made a bunch of documentaries before this. I made films for the History Channel, made films for National Geographic, for A&E. This was the first project that I did as an independent film. Okay. And so... In other words, I pitched this to the History Channel. They were not interested, which is a whole different rabbit hole of a story. And um, so I said, well, I'm going to try to make it as an independent film and raise the money to do it myself. So the the first and hardest part of this project was raising the money in order Mm. to be able to do the project. And the other thing was that we were dealing with men who were very old – even 14 years ago when I began the project. So it was important to me to interview as many of them as possible early on in the process. And that uh, became a a real critical goal. And we interviewed 21 veterans of the unit, and that is a a goldmine of material, not only for the film, but it's material that we're making available to other researchers as well. And when it hit PBS, it went big time. I, I say that in quotes, but I mean, that was a huge get Oh, for you, my goodness. It? Yes. And that was a tremendous piece of serendipity, I think, that we ended up getting it on PBS. That's a very, very hard thing to mm. do. and uh, and But that led to everything else. That led to 
it being uh, broadcast in more than 30 countries. It's big in Germany, by the way. People in Germany have been mm. on many, many times on television in Germany. People like it there. People in the UK. It's been on in China, in Russia. Um, it also led to the book deal. It led eventually to uh, the movie deal, which is a project that's still ongoing, where the producers of American Sniper are developing this mm. as a Hollywood movie. I saw Bradley Cooper the other night on uh, the Golden Globes. I hope that uh, <laughs> uh, he's involved as one of the well, producers. I, I, I remember hope that, that comes to fruition. A few years ago, George Clooney did a movie about the, the art, Monuments Men. The Monuments Men, and uh, that was a fascinating little study, but I think this one has even more because it's all about the Hollywood uh, phony kind of appearance stuff. Well, and once you're talking about deception, then there's stories within stories <laughs> within stories. So so but being on PBS that that was huge and it's and it's a hard it's just such a hard thing. And I, I talked to a lot of filmmakers. It, it's and I know you've talked to documentary oh, filmmakers. Sure, yeah. And it's a it's a the the filmmaking is actually in some ways the easiest part of it. Mm. It's the raising the money and getting someone to take your film seriously because there's so many people trying to make documentary films and trying to get them out there. The product is everywhere. The ones that you see on Netflix and who, all the other places now, including PBS, but I give you so much credit. I know it's a it's a labor of not just love, but intensity. It just takes years and years and years sometimes to get things done. Let me go back to history in general. And you've been at this for a long time. And uh, I said- I'm, be, I'm becoming historic. Oh, both of us are. get older. We're iconic. Don't say historic, <laughs> iconic. But the point that you made earlier that history can be fascinating and interesting, and it's so important to our development as a culture and our young people. Why is it not still in schools delivered in the same exciting fashion? And what can we do to better that? I get asked that a lot, and I, I wish I had a better answer for it. I think we've become uh, very driven in, in education by um, math and science, which are great things. And um, I think the humanities get a little bit lost in that. Mm. And um, I, I know that there are a lot of dedicated history teachers out there. I talk to them. I meet them. Something that I think everybody should try to support in any way you can is National History Day. And if you look it up online, you know, students from all over the country do History Day projects and compete in local level and eventually on the national level. A lot of students do ghost army projects. We try to support those. But I would encourage people to to support that in every way because it's an effort to try to get people to be more involved with history. And I agree with you. I mean, I think history, in a way, that is what gives us our culture some glue, our society some glue. It gives us something in common where we can say, well, we disagree about this, or we disagree about that, but we all come from a heritage that has X, Y, and Z in it. Well, we started out uh, teasing the fact that we don't have any free Hamilton on Broadway tickets to give away, but at least what that did was bring people to a central place, albeit for a lot of money, and and in musical form, they're seeing something. I remember when 1776, the play launched in the mid-70s or so, or right before then, and how interesting that was to see these characters sort of come alive. So sometimes you have to mix a little entertainment in with the history oh, absolutely. to and make which, it palatable. Which is what I try to do in the writing absolutely. that I do. But I would also say about Lin-Manuel Miranda's show is that it also you know, demonstrated and kind of found a unique creative way to demonstrate that if you're um, African-American or 
Chinese American or Latin American right. that this is still your history. Uh, it, 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 you don't, you're not left out of it because you didn't have ancestors that were part of that. Uh, he's kind of shown that that's a commonality to our culture that we can all take pride in, whatever right. your background is. Well, you've got a whole slew of uh, great books in the library, and people can visit net to find out more. And I, I've asked you this every time I've had you on either radio or, in this case, the podcast, but you must be cooking up your next one. Do you go... Back to uh, 20th century, you're sticking in the in the 19th, 18th. Where are you going next? Any <laughs> oh, ideas? Name Any? that century. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a story that my wife Marilyn Ray Byer and I have been interested in for 25 years, and we are trying to write it now. It's a Revolutionary War story, true story, um, and it centers around a gunpowder plot in Bermuda that has a tremendous impact on the first year of the American Revolution. All right. So you tie in Bermuda to the American Revolution. I'm sold. I'm sold. I, I mean, I love Bermuda. It's it's <laughs> Well, it's an awesome piece of history. And it also, it provides a kind of a fulcrum to look at the first year of the revolution in a different way. And some familiar characters are there, like Ben Franklin, uh, but some unfamiliar characters are there, like two families on Bermuda who are involved in a, in a conflict that ends up uh, affecting battles that take place on the mainland. And so it helps us to understand by looking at it from a different way. Before we sign off, I know that I mentioned your website, rickbeyer.net, and I know you can link to this from there. But tell us again about the Legacy Project. Is there a better direct site if people want Ghost to go Ghostarmy.org takes you straight to the okay. Legacy Project. And also we have a tremendous amount now, an increasing amount of primary source materials for the Ghost Army there that you can look at some of the original interviews we've done, letters, scrapbooks, uh, all sorts of stuff. You, can, you don't have to settle for reading a third-person account. You can go and dive in to see what the soldiers said about it themselves. I've known you for almost 20 years, I think, over time, uh, having done many of these shows. You haven't lost... Uh, a seam off your fastball. I'm very impressed. <laughs> and despite the fact that you're physically moving away from us, where we are broadcasting and podcasting from, I know you're just going to keep getting it done. Thank you so much. It's great to see you and bon voyage. Great pleasure. Thank you. Rick Beyer and a great historian with a new book, Rivals Unto Death, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Thanks for listening, as always. Available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.